Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 14 and reading through chapter 20, uh, verse 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is heavy. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the woods and the stones. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, illuminate unto us the paths of righteousness. By your word and spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. By way of an odd introduction, I want to correct a misstatement that I made last Sunday in relation to the text of Psalm 91 when I said that the Hebrew word tanin, the word we render dragon, uh, is sometimes translated adder, which is a type of snake. The word adder is actually a different word, but in the second line of Psalm 91.13, reference is made to the young lion and the tanin, often translated serpent, or as you may have noticed in our chanting of the psalm earlier, dragon. Also, I, last week I made mention of the fact that Aaron's rod was the same as Moses' rod, the rod of God. But given what we find in this week's text, I'm inclined to think that's mistaken as well. Uh, granted, it was an honest mistake, and there are other scholars more capable than me who contend for it being the same rod. Uh, so it wasn't an innovative conclusion. But again, one that I think needs correcting in light of what we read today, but more on that later. So with those two uh, pieces of bookkeeping out of the way, Hopefully, you will recall how we considered the genealogy that's fittingly put forth in chapter 6 to establish Aaron and Moses as the men for the mission to Pharaoh, particularly Aaron, since he's the real focus of the genealogy that's given. We also considered the orders that Moses and Aaron were given in regards to Pharaoh and their ready obedience to do what they're told and how Yahweh lays out what's going to happen and what's the purpose given in chapter 7 and verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand upon Egypt and cause to bring out the sons of Israel from among them. Pharaoh claimed back in chapter 5 and verse 2, Who is Yahweh? I do not know Yahweh. 
All that is going to change, and all of Egypt will know Yahweh. Know is a key word, a key theme that is present all the way into chapter 14. And we've drawn attention to it before, but continue to keep it in the back of your mind in the weeks to come as well. We also considered the initial showdown, the prelude to war in the scene with Aaron's staff turning into a dragon, and then the Egyptian uh, magicians doing all the same, but then theirs are swallowed up by Aaron's rod. And recall that this points forward to Pharaoh and his chariot armor being swallowed up by uh, the Red Sea, by the earth, as we hear in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15:12. And what's Pharaoh's reaction? Well, he's not impressed. His heart is hardened. His heart is strengthened, and he wouldn't hear. He wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron, just as Yahweh had spoken. And that brings us to our text for today, wherein there are principles for our faith to consider in what is arguably a pretty familiar story. And I'd imagine that the the plagues on Egypt are relatively well known. These certainly excite our imaginations. And the first of the river and the other sources of water being turned into blood is no exception. Verse 14. And said Yahweh to Moses, <coughs> Heavy is the heart of Pharaoh. He refuses to send out the people. Now immediately we see and hear the tie that's made with the previous verse regarding the status of Pharaoh's heart. But a different word is used here. In fact, there are, there are three different verbs that are used to describe what happens to Pharaoh's heart. Back in verse 13, it's a word that can mean to be strong or hard. And it's used 11 times between chapters 4 and 14. Here in verse 14, it's a word that is typically rendered to be hard, which is used seven times across those same chapters. And then a word that means to be hard, difficult, or severe is used just two times, once in chapter 7 and verse 3, and the other in chapter 13 and verse 15. And these these three verbs are largely synonymous and typically are translated as hardened in the ESV, but it's worth noting the nuances just the same. So Pharaoh has he has a, a heavy heart, and clearly the text is not saying he's sad, but unmovable or intractable. It, it pictures Pharaoh's heart as though it's made of a substance of uh, an incredibly heavy weight. Then verse 15, Yahweh commands, Go to Pharaoh in the morning. Behold, as he's going out to the water, wait to meet him by the lip of the river and the staff which turned to a serpent, take in your hand. Now, there are a couple of interesting details to note here, but let's begin with the fact that Moses is told to go in the morning. It's early in the day. Uh, Sunrise is not specifically mentioned, but there's plenty of light. And the morning is typically, typically associated with beginnings. And what we have here is the first of three cycles for nine plagues, each cycle beginning with the designation of visiting Pharaoh in the morning. So cycle one includes plagues one through three, the water to blood, the frogs, and gnats. And then cycle two, plagues four through six, flies, death of livestock, and boils, begins in chapter eight and verse 20 where we read, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go that they may serve me. Then cycle three is plagues seven through nine, hail, locusts, and darkness. And it begins in chapter nine and verse 13, which states, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. 
Now, why Pharaoh was out at the river early in the morning, we're not told, but Moses is, is to be there waiting for him. Uh, the word can simply mean to stand or take a stand. That was used back in chapter 5 and verse 20 of the foreman waiting for Moses and Aaron. But the three cycles of plagues are also connected to another significant three in the Bible, uh, namely the, the three-decker universe or house in which the world was made by God. That's comprised of the heavens, the earth, and the waters beneath the earth. And there's a corresponding plague to each level, but in reverse order. Obviously, the Nile River turning to blood has to do with water. And then the plague of frogs has to do with land. You know, we might think, well, they're from the water. But as we'll note when we get there, the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And then the gnats have to do with the heavens or the sky. Uh, they're atmospheric. So it breaks down like this. The water plagues are 1, 4, and 7. The land plagues are 2, 5, and 8. And the sky plagues are 3, 6, and 9. And we will understand this pattern, then we should understand the plagues are not simply um, as just judgment in and of itself, but as judgment upon the whole created order, upon the whole world. Yes, it's isolated to Egypt, but Egypt's whole world is being destroyed. What's more, we should also understand the ten plagues as decreation, that God is tearing the world apart, which provides an interesting contrast to the tenfold creation pattern that can be discerned in Genesis 1, where ten times we read, and God said. Now, I realize this might seem like quite the sidebar, all from verse 15 of our text, but we're not quite done, because it's helpful for us to consider the plagues in this, this more sweeping fashion and thematic fashion, so that then we better understand them as we go. What's more, this three-decker universe is reflected in the second commandment, which declares what? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, another important, important way to understand the plagues is that they are a judgment against Egypt for its idolatry. And how do we know this? Because the Bible tells us so. In Exodus 12:12, 12, 12, in relation to the instructions for the Passover, Yahweh says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. Similarly, in Numbers 33:4, we're told, While the Egyptians were bearing all their firstborn, whom Yahweh had struck down among them, on their gods also Yahweh executed judgments. Now, there are some scholars who want to equate a particular Egyptian god for each plague, and that can be interesting to read about, and there's plenty of biblical scholars who have done so. But, but that's an extracurricular activity which we don't really need to concern our, ourselves with. The text doesn't delineate specific gods uh, with specific plagues, and so neither do we. Also, there were so many Egyptian gods that, well, just picking ten can sometimes just be a guessing game. Again, it can make for some interesting reading, and there's certainly a polemical nature to the plagues, but it's not something that we need to get into the weeds about this morning. The, the, biggest, the biggest three gods for the Egyptians were the Nile, Pharaoh, and the sun. And maybe each of them re represents levels of the created order, but that's simply conjecture. So God is going to bring the entire Egyptian cosmos to ruin. He is going to enact decreation. But then what's going to happen to his people Israel? 
Well, they're going to be delivered out of it and taken into the new creation of the promised land. Of course, there are some significant bumps on the road along the way, but what's pictured for us is Israel being out of an old world and into a new one. That was even the case with Noah. And and think about how the ark was arranged. What was a three-decker universe or a house? Granted, the waters were outside um, and all around, but guess what? Part of the ark was below sea level. So the model holds true. The imagery holds true. Well, a couple of other quick notes about the the plague cycles before we return to our text. Plagues 1 through 3 are basically presented as being performed by Aaron. And they include Goshen. So the sons of Israel aren't exempt from the plagues yet. Plagues 4 through 6 are done by Moses, and they're considerably worse than the first three. Plagues 7 through 9 are done by God, and Egypt is totally decimated. And, of course, the culmination is the tenth plague with the striking down of the firstborn. In the first cycle, Aaron's staff is used, and by the end, the court magicians are defeated. They can't keep up. In the second cycle, Moses speaks and tells Pharaoh what's going to happen. And then the third cycle, the staff of God, or Moses, uh, is, is emphasized. And again, hopefully this excursus uh, helps to give an overall sense of what's taking place, helps us to approach the plagues with a measure of wisdom, and also appreciate the masterful way in which the accounts are arranged and the narrative is told. So Moses is instructed to go meet Pharaoh in the morning at the edge of the river, and Yahweh specifically reminds him, the staff which turned to a serpent, take in your hand. As I mentioned at the outset, it's better to understand that Moses and Aaron each have their own staff and not they're their hand, handing a single staff back and forth. Uh, the language of the text strongly conveys possession and is it's specific here to refer to the staff that turned into a serpent. The word a serpent is not the word tanin as we looked at last week, but the same term used back in chapter 4 when Moses is at Sinai and his staff turns into a serpent. So this is the same staff that he's reminded to take with him in chapter 4 and verse 17, which is even referred to as the staff of God. But then notice what powerful statement it's made in verse 16. And you shall say to him, Yahweh the God of Hebrews sent me to you to say, send out my people that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, you have not heard until now. You, You haven't listened. You haven't obeyed. The implication of this hearing or listening is that it will result in obedience, hence the ESV rendering it that way. But what a remarkable statement that Yahweh's expectation is for Pharaoh to obey, to heed him, to listen to him, and send Israel out that they may worship Yahweh in the wilderness. Now, maybe that doesn't seem all that extraordinary extraordinary to you at first glance, but given the fact that Pharaoh claims not to even know Yahweh, For Yahweh then to demand that Pharaoh submit to him takes a lot of nerve, we might say. Well, God has guts. And of course, he has every right to make this demand as the creator and sovereign God over all things. But appreciate the artistry of the text. Appreciate the rhetorical high ground that Yahweh takes here. You know, some of you, uh, though the number may be relatively few, you may remember the E.F. Hutton commercials that used to air on TV and there were several scenarios, and they're pretty funny commercials. Um, they really made the point because they have stuck with me all these years. But, but in one of the instances, there's two guys jogging in the park, and they're talking about the market, and the first fellow mentions what his broker suggests, and then asks, well, what does your broker say? To which the other fellow replies, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton, and E.F. Hutton says, 
And then everyone around them stops. And it's silent for 10 seconds. And the shot pans out, and everyone around them is leaning into here, and then you hear the narrator voice declare, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Well, there's something of that here. When Yahweh speaks, Pharaoh needs to listen. And almost in anticipation to any objection the king of Egypt might raise, notice the further message that's to be conveyed. Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, I will strike with the staff which is in my hand upon the water, which is the river, which is the Nile, and it shall be turned to blood. And the fish which are in the Nile shall die and shall become odious, and shall become odious the Nile. And Egyptians will be weary to drink water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and, and stretch out your hand over the water of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, and over their pools, and over all collection of their water. And it will be blood in all the land of Egypt, and in the trees, and in the stones. Now clearly the water is being turned to blood as a sign that backs up Yahweh's claims. The fish are going to die, and it's going to stink. Recall this is the same term used by the Israelite foreman in chapter 5 and verse 21, that Moses and Aaron had caused them to stink in the sight of Pharaoh. And notice the last part of verse 18 that says that the Egyptians will be weary to drink water from the Nile. What's that mean? Since it was turned to blood, it was undrinkable anyway. Well, if we jump ahead to verse 24, what do we read? And dug the Egyptians around, round about the river, around the Nile, for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So basically, the Egyptians were having to go and dig wells in order to have drinkable water. You know, they no longer had the ease of just getting it straight from the Nile. And what this partially indicates to us is that this first plague is largely one of inconvenience. In fact, that can be said for plagues one through three. And you have fish dying, but you don't have people or other animals dying, as you will later. Or put, put another way, the comfort of the Egyptians was attacked. And so this first plague largely serves as a warning. All of their usual water sources were turned to blood. The Nile itself, the streams, pools, or ponds, and whatever is meant by collection. And then the last part of verse 19, the text is clear to state that there will be blood in all the land of Egypt. And then we read, in the trees or the woods and in the stones. Now most translations read, uh, in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Uh, as if they had wooden cups or stone cups or something like that, or, or pitchers. Um, and that's possible. That, but the text doesn't specifically mention vessels. And one scholar argues they wouldn't have had wooden cups anyway. One possible rendering of the last part of the verse is that it's indicating that even in the parts of the land where there are only trees and rocks and nothing else, even in the remotest places of Egypt, there will be blood. Another take is that it's referring to household idols, that would need washing, and if they did so, then it would be kind of bloody water. I don't have a strong conclusion either way, but in this uh, inconveniencing the Egyptians primarily, could there be also some retribution or eye for eye taking place here for Pharaoh requiring the Israelites to gather their own straw for the brick making? Maybe so. Though it does seem that the Israelites weren't immune to this plague either, though the focus is on the Egyptians. Well, what do we read next in verse 20? And did thus Moses and Aaron as commanded Yahweh. And he lifted up the staff and struck the water which was in the river. 
before the eyes of Pharaoh and before the eyes of his servants and was turned all the water which was in the Nile to blood. <coughs> now, interestingly enough, who lifted up the staff seems a bit ambiguous. The text simply says he lifted up the staff. So was it Moses? Was it Aaron? Uh, perhaps the ambigu- ambiguity is intentional. But Moses and Aaron's immediate obedience is demonstrated once again. And verses 20 and 21 mirror verses 17 and 18. The fulfillment of what Yahweh said would happen takes place. And the end of verse 21 is clear to state, And there was blood in all the land of Egypt. But then notice the humor that shouldn't be missed in verse 22. And did thus the magicians of Egypt in their secret arts, and hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen, he did not hear, he did not listen to them as spoke Yahweh. Now the first part of that verse, what's that mean with what the magicians did? Well, they also turned water into blood, which means that it only made things worse for the Egyptians. Now, there are questions about where the non-bloody water came from, and it's a fair one, but we simply don't know. There's clean water available, and apparently there was clean water available in some form or fashion, and perhaps they used that. But again, don't miss the, the, the humor of the stupidity of their idolatry that they're simply making the circumstances more difficult. And it is funny, and we should laugh about it, even as we'll see it uh, see with the next plague as well. But how does Pharaoh react? Well, he's indifferent. He, can, he just shrugs it all off and goes home. And he didn't set his heart also to this. He's ignoring what's plainly in front of him. But it comes as no surprise to us as the reader or to Moses or Aaron because the Lord has already said this is going to happen. And then in verse 25, we're told, passed seven days after Yahweh had struck the Nile, had struck the river. So we're told that a week passed And whether we're to understand this as a transition verse into chapter 8 isn't clear, though certainly possible. Yet why does it matter that a week goes by? Well, it ties back into the the decreation theme mentioned earlier. And that there's a decreation week being pictured here after a fashion. Another way to possibly take this is that the first week is defiled, as was the case when Adam fell. And so a new week is needed. An eighth day is needed. Perhaps that's part of the implication. But there's still a few significant points that we need to cover in relation to this text. First, did you notice how often the Nile, the river, is explicitly mentioned? The word in Hebrew can simply be translated as river, but since the Nile is the river in Egypt, that's why it's often translated Nile. By my count, it's used 13 times. Then the plural form of that word is used once, so that makes for a total of 14 uses of the word, so 7 times 2. Second, it seems to best uh, seems best to understand that the river and other water sources were actually turned into blood. There are some scholars, even conservative ones, that want to say that the river didn't actually turn into blood, but it was contaminated in such a way that it turned red and looked like blood because of natural causes or something like that. And while some of the arguments are somewhat compelling and even well-reasoned to a degree, it doesn't explain the blood in ponds and, and other water collection, collection sources, which the text is clear to distinguish. But a question we have to ask and answer is, why blood? Why this sign? Some of you may already know or can guess, but what should a bloody river remind us of? Well, the beginning of the book, 
and the Hebrew baby boys being cast into the Nile. You know, the, the river turned, turned to blood indicates that blood has been spilled and needs to be avenged. Ultimately, the avenger takes vengeance in the tenth plague. But we need to understand that the avenger of blood is being called into action. The blood acts as a signal for him to act. Recall from Genesis 4.10, after Cain murders Abel, Yahweh asks, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. There is blood guilt and it has to be dealt with. The land is defiled on account of innocent blood being shed. Now, the principles uh, behind this are detailed more fully in Numbers 35. And you can go and read about that later today or this week and how the avenger was required to go after the murderer, the distinctions that were made when it came to manslaughter, and how the cities of refuge worked, etc. And, and all of that is worked out later in Israel's uh, laws. But the foundations for it are laid in Genesis 4 and what's required to make up for the shedding of blood. Now, some of you probably heard of the term kinsman redeemer. And we, we like that terminology just fine. Um, one of the more obvious examples of the kinsman redeemer is in the book of Ruth and how Ruth is eventually redeemed by Boaz and becomes his wife. And of course, this imagery reminds us of Christ redeeming us. And certainly, uh, the concept is pregnant with that imagery. But we also have to understand that kinsman redeemer also means kinsman avenger. It's the word goel and indicates a next of kin. You know, in the Marvel Universe, Captain America is the first Avenger. Well, in the real universe, Yahweh is the first Avenger. In certain circumstances, it was the nearest of kin's duty to track down and kill the killer. In other cases, the kinsman redeemer was to buy someone out of bondage. In the case of bloodshed, the land was defiled and the land calls you up. And this had nothing to do with family vengeance. You know, the whole nation is, un, is under curse if the blood is not avenged. The avenger had a duty to take care of the situation. Again, we won't go into all the detail today, but there are certain instances where a city, a city of refuge could be entered and the avenger had to leave the slayer alone. Even more, when the high priest died, the blood debt was considered paid and vengeance was no longer needed in cases of manslaughter. What does that point forward to? Well, the death of Christ, our great high priest. We can also see how Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, buying us out of bondage. Even in the Passover, the Israelite houses with blood on the door acted as cities of refuge. So, so Yahweh is going to act as the kinsman redeemer, the kinsman avenger at Passover. And this first plague indicates the blood has been spilled and atonement must be made. Now, you may wonder if these principles of the kinsman redeemer apply today. Does the shedding of blood defile the land in the same way? Well, the, the answer, the short answer is no, it doesn't. There, there's not a one-to-one -one correlation anymore, in part because Christ's death, the shedding of Christ's blood, the high priest, has fulfilled it once and for all. The ground is no longer cursed in the same way. But also because of who is, you know, who is now to be the avenger of blood. What's well, the civil magistrate? At least that's part of Paul's point in Romans 13. Of course, if the civil magistrate isn't doing its job, that's a whole other discussion. You can refer to the Sunday school classes from a few years ago on biblical opposition to tyrants for more. But consider what's pictured for us here in this sequence. Consider the theology that's demonstrated. Jesus saves the elect and destroys the wicked. Jesus avenges the church 
against those who attack her. You know, in the book of Acts, Jesus plays the part of Redeemer. In the book of Revelation, Jesus plays the part of Avenger, justly destroying Jerusalem. And what constitutes part of Jesus' warning to his disciples, which is picked up later in the epistles, especially Hebrews? Get out of Jerusalem. It's going to be destroyed. There's an exodus out of Jerusalem. For the slaying of Jesus, the truly innocent man whose blood was shed, the avenger comes in AD 70. And just as we never really leave the book of Genesis when reading the Bible, because it's everywhere, similarly the Exodus and Exodus themes are everywhere if we're paying attention in order to see them. Well, what are some further implications of our text this morning? Well, first... There are instances in which God's judgments don't seem to distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous, and His people suffer with everyone else. We readily know this from what we read in the Bible and other portions of history and what we also know from our own experiences. This is especially the case when God's people have to live under tyrants or inept rulers. Their decisions and rulings can directly affect us and not for our good. But as believers, as those who know that Christ is ruling, then we meet those circumstances by faith, knowing that our king is at work, that our redeemer and avenger is an idol, even if it's unclear to us what's going on. Once again, it seems that Moses and Aaron are only making things worse for the sons of Israel. Second, rulers need to listen to Jesus, the king of kings. He's calling them to obey. He's calling them to to listen. And if they don't, they better watch out. But this also immediately means that the church must have a prophetic voice in calling rulers to repentance, in declaring God's word in the hearing of the magistrate. Now recall the, the biblical progression of priest, king, and prophet, which reflects Israel's history to a great degree, but also varying levels of maturity. Priests had to do what they were told, to follow the rules, uh, to follow the rules for worship exactly. There wasn't any room for improvisation. Kings had a more difficult task of discerning between good and evil and having to make hard decisions, matters of life and death. Well, how are prophets described in Scripture? Well, they're God's counselors. He asks them for advice, and he takes what they have to say into consideration. But they're also the ones he sends out to speak to kings, to put them in their place, speak new worlds into being, and so forth. And so the church has this prophetic calling, not predicting the future, but declaring what God has declared, particularly to rulers and nations. Third, let us not fail to recognize that as we have been redeemed, as we have been released from bondage to sin and death, that it's in order that we too might worship the Lord. Israel wasn't to be freed from Egypt for freedom's sake, but freed in order to serve. And the same is true for us. Now, isn't that basically Paul's argument in Romans 6, which we heard earlier, where he declares, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. See, Jesus hasn't redeemed you, hasn't rescued you to free you unto an undefined freedom, an undefined freedom, or a freedom just for freedom's sake but unto the true freedom that's found in pursuing His Word for all of life and keeping His commands. As as James describes in his letter, we are to be those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty. And we are to persevere, doing, acting upon what we read there, which is the life of blessing. 
And then finally, as we consider this first plague of the river, of the water being turned to blood, surely our minds should leap forward to Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee when he turns the water into wine. And wherein the water into blood is an act of warning and judgment in Exodus, the water into wine signals the kingdom that has come in Christ, the exodus that his blood achieves from sin and death for his people. The signal of his blood, this sign that he's, that, that's been given to us, demonstrates our redemption because his blood was shed for us. He is the high priest. He is the Passover lamb. He has ushered, ushered us into the city of refuge, that heavenly Jerusalem. Perhaps we can even make the case the church is now the city of refuge to a degree. But, but here before your faith, here at the Lord's table, week after week, you get to taste and see his goodness and grace to you. You get to behold again that he's your nearest kinsman who has rescued you and that you need not fear death or judgment for his blood is displayed. His memorial is seen and you are no longer under the wrath of God. And as your faith finds encouragement in the salvation that is yours, may it also be assured that Christ is the avenger for his people now and at the last day when he comes again. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for the imagery that is set before us in the Old Testament that points us forward to Christ, our Savior and King. And indeed, may we understand more fully uh, the word that is here for us this day from Exodus, may your spirit help us to, to bear fruit in our lives unto your glory and, into, and unto greater obedience to your word. Strengthen our faith to these ends, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.